So it says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. It says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I've become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have a gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked, and it thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, because love never fails. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we are here today, and Lord, I can not only say on behalf of myself, but on behalf of the entire congregation, Lord, that that worship was just truly pure and beautiful. And Lord, I pray that when we worship you, God, we don't get distracted by the sound or the words, but truly, Lord, that I worship is just our speech to you, God, glorifying you as God and as King. And Lord, that as we have just been blessed, Lord, by your presence in our worship, we just pray now that you would come into this place and fill all of our hearts, Lord, with your spirit. So that, Lord, just as your word says that as snow leaves from heaven and does not return, so my word will leave from my mouth and shall not return void. And so, Lord, I pray that you open all of our hearts, that we can receive your word. And, Lord, also for me, I pray that you help me, Lord. I pray that you help me speak your word and speak on your behalf, Lord. And that I don't speak to glorify myself in any sort of proud way, but that I speak, Lord, on your behalf and to be your servant and messenger. We're expectant, God, of the things that you're going to do, and we are excited to be here, Lord. And we pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, church. It's really excited to see everybody, you know. I got to say, that song, Run to the Father, that was just a real punch right in the heart, wasn't it? I was crying, man. That was, I have not cried that hard since I was getting married, and that was bad, you know? <laughs> I was like a slobbering dog, man. It was insane, you know? So just beautiful worship all together today. So our title of our message today is A More Excellent Way, right? A More Excellent Way. So if you're a note taker, that's our, the title of our message. And that comes from, if you look at chapter 12, Verse 31, go ahead and read it there with me. It says this, it says, But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I will show you a more excellent way. Right? Now, 1 Corinthians 13, we've all heard it at some point in time. We've either seen it on someone's wall as a decoration. We've either heard it at a wedding because it's just such a beautiful passage of, Hey, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. We've all heard that. And it's a passage that we all just love to refer to i mean even unbelievers at some point in time they would be like hey aren't christians supposed to be loving and kind because you're not really being that right now you know everybody knows this passage and the thing about first corinthians uh 13 is that you know i'm a big cookie guy you know every time i go over to my my in-laws house my mother-in-law trish is always like ryan do we need cookies and i'm like yes we do and so I look at 1 Corinthians 13 kind of like the cream of an Oreo, right? It's a part that everybody loves, but it's in between two pieces of, I guess, Scripture that are super important. Chapter 12 is when the Apostle Paul, who wrote to the Corinthians, is talking about what exactly a spiritual gift is and how it kind of functions in the church. This is where we kind of get the passage of, like, you know, 
Um, those who are in the body are kind of like a hand, and there's some who are a foot, and there's some who are an eye, right? Because they all function as the body of Christ. It's kind of where we get that idea. And then you go over to chapter 14, and Paul's talking about how we are to desire and pursue spiritual gifts because they exist. And having the ability to utter certain things and to be enabled by the Spirit is a true thing. And so Paul says, I want to be able to make sure that we can do this in the correct way. And so you have two pieces of literature that are separated by this chapter, chapter 13, the cream of the Oreo. And it's just a passage that's all about love, right? And the purpose here that Paul wrote this is because what he wants to do is he wants to return the Corinthian church back to the correct way of spiritual gifts and how they were used. Now, if you were here a few weeks ago, we talked on 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, chapter 15, if you remember, was when the Corinthian church was saying, we don't believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Now, in chapter 13, now, as we remember the Corinthian church, they were a church of what? They were very carnal, right? They had a lot of different pride issues. And so when they were speaking in their tongues, in their spiritual gifts, they were doing it not because they wanted to edify other people, but because they wanted to glorify themselves, right? And then not only that, but they had adultery going on in the church. They were divisive. They were suing one another. And so they have all this carnal issues that's going on. And just as we read in verse 31, Paul says, desire the best gifts he doesn't even like condemn what they're doing he doesn't even say hey everything that you're doing needs to stop right now but he says hey desire the best gifts and even in first corinthians chapter one paul even says that you come short of no gift saying that everybody in the church is is uh, enabled with the spirit in some sort of way everybody in the church had some sort of spiritual gifts but he says what he says and yet i'm going to show you a more excellent way he goes, listen, I know you got a whole lot of problems with carnality right now. We're going to deal with that in chapter 15 as we did a few weeks ago, right? He goes, I know there's a whole lot of problems going on in the church. I know that there's sin, but I, I'm, right now I want to talk about spiritual gifts. Right now I want to talk about people speaking in tongues and people prophesying and people in X, Y, and Z and all those things. And I'm going to show you a more excellent way. And when I read that, I think to myself, a more excellent way to what? Right? So let's go ahead. Let's read verses 1 through 3. What's it say? It says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I've become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could even remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body up to be burned, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. You see, church, the big idea here and today, and if you're a note taker, this is something I would underline, highlight, circle, and all of it, is that just as faith without works is dead, works without love is also dead. See, the thing about life is that it's never been about what you do, but it's always been about how you do it. A lot of people, you know, the, the, the best thing about having a nice small church is that we all know each other, you know. And most of you guys, if not all you guys, know that I am an HVAC. I do a lot of heating and air conditioning, and um, we work with a lot of electricians, plumbers, carpenters, mason, you know, all of them. And so one day we're working on a job, and, you know, the customer is saying, hey, my furnace is broken, yada, yada, yada. And also I have an electrician coming because upstairs does not have any electricity. And I'm trying to renovate the whole house, this and that. And so we're like, okay, you know, so we're working, we're doing our work, and the electrician shows up. We tell them, hey, you know what, homeowner just said that, you know, there's no power upstairs. They want to run some wires upstairs, you know, put some outlets up there, put some light fixtures up there. Electrician's like, all right, got it. And so normally what happens is that these electricians, what they'll do is they'll run wires like inside the wall so that nobody sees them. 
right? You know, that's what we assume is going to happen. This dude, I'm not even, this is a real story. He takes his drill, okay? He takes his drill. He drills outside of the house, runs a wire up the side of the house and into the second floor. And it's just this big old dangling brown wire. doesn't even strap it to nothing. It's just dangling there. And so we're looking at this thing and we're like, how the heck do you think that that's even okay? You know, and the worst part was that we were the guys that were running the job, so we were responsible, you know. And so we had to completely undo his whole mess, and he goes, well, what did you do? And we're like, it was disgusting. And he goes, but the power was on upstairs. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah, the power was on upstairs, but did you not realize that there's wires just dangling outside of this dude's house? Like, no one's going to want that, especially not a Margate, you know. And uh, and so, again, it's like, (laughs) sorry, sorry. It's not about what we do, right? It's about how you do it. It's about why you do it. It's about the reasoning behind your actions. You know, the electrician, he just kind of ran his wire up the side of the house, not thinking whatever. Hey, the power's on. It works. But, like, he didn't even think to see, like, that's just disgusting, you know? And so what I see here is that Paul addresses, in verses 1, 2, and 3, he addresses three different types of people, all right? So if you're a note taker, this is three different types of people. The first person is demonstrated in verse 1. Now, this is somebody who has the ability to speak in tongues, but more specifically, this is someone that they believe that their words carry a lot of weight. This is someone who commonly says to themselves, well, I just got to say something. Oh, you know what? I was, I was thinking about this, and I just have to tell you, you know, this is that kind of person. And I got to say, that's kind of me, you know? Uh, The second person is in verse 2. Now, this is somebody who is just extremely intelligent, right? They believe that they understand everything about God. They've been spending the past, I don't know, X amount of years trying to study everything about God so that when the time comes, they have an answer, you know? This is someone who's just so absolutely wise, but they have no love for people. That's kind of like the catch. The third person, verse 3, is somebody who's always at every single prayer meeting. Every single time the tithe basket goes around, they're putting something in it. Every time there's a church service, they're there. They're always serving, always giving, they're always there, but they have no love for what they're doing. They're just miserable, and they're always, always, always doing, right? So let's look at our first person. This is verse 1, okay? Let's read it again. It says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I've become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. You know, there was this time period in my life, it was right after I got saved, that uh, I was just being so arrogant, so arrogant, you know, and I was just thinking to myself that I kind of had all the answers, and that, like, you know, my youth group was the best youth group, and that I was just, like, you know, I had all the answers, and I was just, like, the senior in high school that knew it all, you know, and so one day I'm driving to work, and I get this text message from my dad, you know, and so once I get to, you know, I'm not, sorry, not work, I'm driving to school, I'm driving to school, I pull in, get this text message from my dad and it says hey son i was thinking and praying about you this morning uh i have this verse from the lord from you and it's first corinthians 13 1 and i'm thinking to myself oh first corinthians that's a really high holy book man that's probably something really good for me and so i read it and it says though i you know those i speak with the tongues of men and of angels but i have not love i've become a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal geez thanks dad you know <laughs> it's funny because he listens to the podcast too so he's gonna hear it and go well it worked you know <laughs> But I remember reading it, and, like, I don't know if you guys ever seen, like, Nacho Libre, but I was like, who, me? No, come on, don't be crazy, you know? <laughs> Not me. Not me. Come on, anybody but me, you know? I just remember reading that just being like, ah, uh-uh, no. But I was a person that needed to hear that, you know? And so, like, when he uses the term of men and of angels, he's literally talking about the spiritual gift to speak in tongues. Now, 
The thing about speaking in tongues is that, like, today, like, when you hear someone speak in tongues, they're just kind of like, la, 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 and there's like, wow, that was crazy, you know? And, but really what happens is that when Paul says, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, he's talking about the gifts speaking in tongues, but he's also saying that it has a real effect. In Acts chapter 2, if you remember, you know, um, like, I think probably last year we were in um, Acts chapter 2 when our church was going through Acts on Sundays, um, Pastor Tony addressed the chapter of when the apostles were in the upper room. It's a pretty well-known um, passage, but essentially what happened was that all the apostles were in the upper room, and they were waiting there because Jesus said, hey, uh, go into Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit to descend upon you. It's like, okay, so they're sitting there, and they're praying, and what happens is, again, the Spirit comes down upon them, and it says that it came upon them like tongues of fire, and that as they were speaking in tongues, there's people right outside, like thousands of people because it's Passover, and so all these people are hearing, actually, no, sorry, it's Pentecost. It was, this, it was a festival of Pentecost. And so there's people, Jews from all over the world are in Jerusalem, and they're hearing all these people, you know, speak. And it's kind of like one guy's like, man, they're speaking in Spanish. And the other guy's like, no, that's Italian. And the other guy's like, no, that's French, you know. And they're all speaking in these, like, these tongues of languages, and everybody is hearing it in their own language. They're like, how is it that you say they're speaking in Persian? You're saying they're speaking in Chaldean. You're speaking, their, you know what I'm saying? It was a real, genuine thing of the Spirit. It was a real work. Because from that moment, you got millions of people in a tiny city of Jerusalem. You got 12 guys who are apostles, and they're speaking in tongues, and boom, the gospel is sent. And now thousands of people now believe. The church is established in Jerusalem, and everyone there now knows that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. But that could have only have happened if it was the Holy Spirit and if it was God that was doing it. Amen? And so nowadays, what happens is you have these pastors coming up, and they're going... And then it's like, wow, that's crazy. They're speaking in tongues, you know? But it's like, that's not speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues is actually something that actually has an effect. And so Paul says, though I have that ability, though I can speak in tongues, and people who speak some weird foreign language, I can still tell them about the gospel. He says, though I have that ability, but what? But I have not love. What does he sound like? A clanging cymbal and sounding brass. In other words, he says this. Though I have not love, every time I speak, I sound annoying. Now, the purpose of this text is to demonstrate that what you say and how you say it, if your speech is not fueled by love, you're only going to sound annoying. So there's one of two outcomes is how it comes down to. You're either going to sound loving and people are going to want to receive what you're saying, or you're going to sound annoying and people don't want to listen to you. Now, unfortunately, I've been on the latter side of that way too many times. You know, I've always been the guy that's just been like, well, I think you need to hear my opinion, you know, and people's like, dude, I don't want to listen to that right now, you know. And so what, G what, what, sorry, what Paul is saying here is that though I have this tremendous ability, though I'm extremely smart, though my opinion does indeed carry some weight, if I don't have love when I'm speaking to somebody, I'm only going to sound annoying. And so my question is that when we speak to other people, right, do we sound like we're loving? Do we sound like we're genuinely interested into that person? Or do we sound annoying? And only you are going to be able to know that. Only you are going to be able to say, like, do you want to listen to you? Because sometimes I don't even want to listen to myself. And I'll say to myself, Ryan, you got to shut up, man. <laughs> you know? And the idea here is that, you know, the word here, love, is the word agape. We always hear that at weddings, but the word agape, it means sacrificial and unconditional love. It means I'm going to love you till death do us part. It means all the time, every day, no matter what. 
And so when, when it says, though I have not love, it's saying, though I have not agapeo, though I have not sacrificial love. And that literally word agape is generally only used when it's talking about Jesus Christ. Because think about it. Jesus Christ was so loving, so others focused, that although he was holy, he came to earth, took all of our sin, and died with it. And he rose again and gave us his life. Right? And so when it says, though I have not agape, it literally means, though I have not the love of Jesus. You know, Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 says, do nothing from selfish ambition, selfish gain, or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. You know, when I was at Bible college, I had these two uh, professors, right? And one of them was kind of like a younger professor, kind of like me, you know? And he had, like, he had the haircut, he had the skinny jeans, the boots, and he would, like, you know, he reeked of coffee all the time. And he was the kind of guy where it's, like, he would come into class on, like, a skateboard and was like, what's up, dudes? Let's, you know, learn about the Lord and stuff, you know? And then, like, when he would preach and, like, he would teach, he would, like, teach in a way to, like, entertain, you know? And he would have, like, his sermons be, like, things that people can tweet, you know, because he wanted to be relevant. But then there's this guy that comes into class, right? And he was a substitute for my professor. And he was old, and he was short, didn't really have a whole lot of hair. And uh, <laughs> I'm not trying to poke fingers at anybody, you know. But he comes in. I just remember thinking to myself, because I was sitting in the back row, and it was a class I didn't even need to graduate. And I'm just like, you know, sitting in the back. I'm like, whatever. So this guy comes in. I'm just like, oh, great. You know, here we go. Time to tune out for the next three and a half hours. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, man, I wish I had three more hours with this guy. Because he did not teach to entertain he did not teach out of a way of, like, look how high and, like, look how, like, elegant and how awesome I am. But he spoke with the genuineness of the word of God. And when he spoke, he had a fear of the Lord in his eyes. And, that you know, you would see him, like, read John 3.16 and he would get teared up because it meant something to him, you know. And I just remember hearing that being like, man, I would much rather spend nine hours with this guy, you know, hearing him talk than hear the guy that's trying to be relevant. Hearing that guy that's trying to be like, oh, well, my opinion matters. I'm a, you know, da-da-da-da-da. My church has 10 million people in it, you know? It's like, I don't want to hear that, you know? And so the thing is, is that God is always more concerned with our heart, right? Again, the idea today is that it's not about what you do, but it's about why you do it. So we have our second individual, and it's from, it's, it's verse 2, so let's read it again. It says, though I have the gift of prophecy... And understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. You know, what Paul's explaining here is that he's, involved, he's explaining that this is somebody who has attained everything in, a Christ, in, in Christianity, right? He, you know, Paul says in chapter 14 that the ability to prophesy is the greatest spiritual gift to attain. And so he's saying, not only do I have the ability to prophesy, but I understand all mysteries about God. I know everything about the Bible. And I have all faith so that I could even remove mountains. Remember how Jesus said only a mustard seed of faith required to move mountains? Paul's saying, I got all the faith. I can move any mountain I want, you know. But he says, but I have not love. Because church, at the end of the day, you know, the most valuable thing that you can attain is love. This person was able to attain all the mysteries of God, all the knowledge of God. And they were able to know everything. But they were never able to understand that God is love. And so my question is, what's the point of truly seeking to understand God if we miss the fact that God is love, right? What's the point of gaining knowledge if nobody wants to hear you? Again, we're going back to the idea of you're only going to sound annoying without love, right? And so love is the most valuable thing to attain. Although you have understood everything about God, but you don't have love, man, that's really unfortunate, you know? 
Jesus says to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, verse 39, he says, You search the scriptures thinking that in them they have life, but it is they that testify of me. And so the solution here to be loving is not to, I guess, prevent yourself from gaining knowledge. It's not to prevent yourself from walking in faith. Because the thing about being a Christian is that growth requires you to know more about God. It requires you to deepen your faith. And if you're not doing those things, let me tell you as a side note, uh, you're wasting the time that God has given us on planet Earth. And if you're not spending time to truly know your creator, uh, then you're not doing what he's called you to do. But the fact of the matter is that why would we want to know God more if we don't even love him? Right? Again, you know, I remember being in college thinking that I wanted to, I guess, understand and know every single I guess, um, theology that there was to God. Because what I wanted to do is I wanted to be able to have all the answers to every single debate. You know, the thing about, like, young guys going to, like, a Bible college or whatever is that they're always debating, like, you know, is God like this? Is God like that? You know, does he like red? Does he like blue? And, like, they will, like, pull out all these different verses to be like, no, God is like this, and if you're wrong, you're not a true Christian, you know? And it's a really unfortunate thing. I remember being like that. You know, and what I see happens today is that people are more likely to not necessarily do that with their theology because let's let's be honest, it's not every day that we're arguing about whether or not God predestines people or not. But what typically happens is people do that with politics, you know. I remember again when I was like eighteen, nineteen, I had these flashcards on my phone that what I would do is they would go like, Okay, what kind of topic do I wanna like debate about? Climate change, uh, immigration or whatever, and I would pick on one and it would give me a flashcard and it would say, Oh, really, the world's not gonna end in twelve years, you know, whatever, you know. And then so I would have these flashcards so that any time I got in a political debate, I would be like, actually, you're wrong, you know. But the thing about love is that it's more loving to say less than it is to uh, sorry, disprove somebody, you know. Uh, there's this book by Dale Carnegie. It's uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And on the subject of arguing, he says that the only outcome of an argument is you either lose the argument or you win the argument and you lose in the long run. And there's no way to lose. Uh, sorry, there's no way to win. And so the way of love is to truly be able to just say, you know what, that's okay, right? The third individual, right? this is somebody who sacrifices and serves all the time. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I have given my body up to be burned, but I have not loved, it profits me nothing. Underline in your Bible, it profits me nothing. When he says, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, he's talking about when Jesus was speaking to the, uh, to the rich young ruler. Do you guys remember that passage? It was when Jesus and his apostles are walking, and this rich guy comes up to him and says, Hey, Lord, uh, how do I get saved? And he goes, Well, have you been following the commandments? Yes. You honor your father and mother. You, you know, you worship God. Yes, yes, yes. I do all those things. But how do I be saved? And he goes, Well, how would you sell all the things that you have to the poor? And you guys remember, he, he walked away sad because he had a lot of riches. And so Paul says that not only... In this circumstance, in this scenario, did I sell everything I have to the poor? But I, what I also did is I gave up my body to be burned, right, for some sort of martyrdom way. But the thing about this is that giving without love, you gain nothing in return, right? The more you do without love, there's going to be nothing that's going to produce from it, right? You know, there was like this ancient kind of teaching back in the day, and what they taught essentially was that those who would um, die to martyrdom, because if you remember the Roman church, or sorry, the Roman uh, Empire at that time, they were killing Christians at the stake, lighting their bodies on fire to light the streets of Rome. And so this idea kind of came out where it's like if you died in martyrdom for your faith, that was an instant ticket to, uh, to salvation. 
And so what Paul's saying here is he's saying, though I give myself up to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. So in other words, no matter what you do on this life, if you have not love, you gain nothing from it, you know. And this reminds me of the story in, in Matthew chapter 18. It's when Peter and Jesus are talking. And typically, if, if you remember, uh, Jewish kind of ideology was that, you know, to forgive somebody, you would forgive them three times. And after the third time, you would detach yourself from them, right? So Peter, in attempts to kind of sound holy to Jesus, he goes, Jesus, do you think that it's more holy to forgive people seven times? Jesus kind of like figures out what's going on. He goes, no, you should forgive 70 times seven times because it's not about what you do, but how you do it and why you do it. If all you're trying to do is kind of reach the number of forgiveness of I've done this this many times, then you got to keep on forgiving because it's not about how many times you forgive. It's about why you forgive. It's about the love in your heart when you forgive. And so we have these three scenarios and then all three of them have these commonalities between them. All three of them say, but have not love right? And all three of them are negatively affecting the person that's doing whatever action that is. It's not saying that if I don't have love, I'm going to ruin somebody else's life. It's not saying if I don't have love, I'm going to destroy somebody else's like dynasty or business or whatever that it's saying, if I don't have love, I'm either annoying, I gain nothing or I profit nothing. Right? And so it's saying that without love, you are the direct person that gets negatively affected. And I want you to hold on to that just for a moment because I'm going to read you something from John chapter 15. It's a very common verse that everyone knows. It says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Now, when Jesus says you can do nothing, is he saying that like you physically cannot produce anything? No, because there's tons of billionaires out there that don't believe in Jesus. I mean, all you got to do is watch the presidential debates and boom, there you go. So he's not saying without Jesus, you're not going to be able to do anything because all three of those people were actually doing something, right? And not only that, but they were doing good things. Speaking in, in tongues and using your spiritual gift, that's a pretty good thing. Giving, you know, uh, sacrificing and giving to others, that's a pretty good thing. Sacrificing, you know, uh, what you have, and also seeking to know God. Those are all great things, right? And the first person, he was actually speaking in tongues. The second person was actually attaining everything. He was actually growing. The third person was actually being burned. But it was they themselves that were negatively affected, right? In other words, they were producing nothing. From their gains and what they were trying to do, nothing was being produced from them. But rather, everything from them was being taken. And so the fact of the matter is that you can strive... To be the wisest, the best, the smartest, the greatest. You can strive to be all those things. And the, and the fact of the matter is that you're probably going to become those things. You know, uh, Her, I, th I believe it was uh, Henry Ford that said that uh, if you tell yourself that you can or you can't, you're right. And so the fact of the matter is that if you tell yourself, I'm going to know everything about God. I'm going to set myself on this path to be the best individual in this career path. You, you know, odds are you're going to become that. But what's going to happen is that nothing from your life is going to be produced, and especially not love. And so when Jesus here is saying that apart from me, you can do nothing, he means that the only way to do anything with love is through him. Every action you try to do in your own power is not going to produce love. See, the purpose of this message, church, is that I'm not trying to tell you, hey, we need to be more loving and kind to one another. Because the fact of the matter is that we can't. We can't produce love from our own selves. 
We can't bring love. We can't even try to love people. Jesus says you can do nothing. The purpose of this message is to say that if you see yourself in either one of those three scenarios and you're like, wow, man, I really need to try better. It's not that you need to go and try to be kinder to the person you work with. It's that you need to abide in Jesus. It says that apart from me, you will do nothing. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Galatians 5.22 says that the fruit, singular, of the Spirit is love. But then it also goes on and mentions a bunch of other things. The fruit, the one fruit of the Spirit is love. And then joy, peace, and on the, on the rest. So the one fruit from God are those things, specifically love. And so if you see yourself, wow, I need to be a more loving individual. It's not that you need to go and be kinder to the individual. It's not that you need to be nicer. It's not that you yourself need to try to pull it out of you. It's that you need to abide in Jesus. See, if we recognize a love, or sorry, a lack of love in our own life, it's just simply a symptom of not abiding. If you're looking at that and you're saying, man, that's me. It's not that, again, you need to try harder. It's that you're just not abiding in Jesus. And the thing about abiding, it means this. It means to remain, to stay, and to live with in reference to a place, a condition, or a time. I'm going to say that again. To abide means to remain. It means to stay and live with in reference to a place, time, and condition. So we can use that example for marriage, right? So to abide with my wife is to say that we are going to live together forever from now till death do us part. And so when I say I'm going to abide in Jesus, I'm saying I'm going to walk and be in the spirit every day until I go to him, essentially to death do us part, right? And so again, if we see ourselves in those scenarios, we need to abide. That's the simple answer. And the good thing is that what Paul begins to do is he begins to illustrate what love actually is. You know, I, I just said that, um, that I'm an HVAC, right? Again, you know, and when I work on a furnace or when I'm working on an air conditioner, there's a simple way that I can use to assess what's going on. So if you were to call me up and say, hey, Ryan, my heat's not on, my air conditioning's not on, I go up and I have a simple process to look at it and go, oh, okay, I can test the electricity here, I can check, you know, these fuses over here, I can check what's going on over there, and then once I do that, okay, I can pinpoint what's wrong. Whoa, sorry. You know, and instead of, and, you know, and so the reason why that exists is so that I can do that instead of start ripping out all these wires and be like, well, you need a new furnace, <laughs> you know. And so in the same way, what Paul's doing here is, is that he is giving us the definitions of love so that we can assess ourselves to know whether or not it's time that we have drifted away from abiding in Jesus. Because let's be real, it's really easy to stop abiding in Jesus. It's really easy. So the first one says this, love suffers long and is kind. Now, I said earlier that it's impossible for you to be loving. If you said, no, it's not, well, try to suffer long and be kind on your own power. That's difficult. I don't think I've ever been able to done that. Sorry, to be able to do that, you know? And the thing is, is that when Paul talks about love, he writes in verbs, okay? He's not writing in a, you know, an emotional feeling or understanding or thinking. He's talking about love does this. Love does that. Because the thing about love is that it can always be demonstrated in action. If you love your wife, she will be able to see it, not feel it. Feeling is a byproduct of what she sees. And, this, and vice versa. For if you love your husband, he's going to be able to see it, not feel it. Feeling is a byproduct of what she sees. And so Romans chapter 5 verses eight, or verse 8 says this. God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. So love is something that you do. It is an action. It's not like, oh, I feel like I'm in the spirit. No, you either are or you're not. You're either loving or you're not. And so when it says suffering long, your version might say love is patient, love is kind. It's the one that we always know. But the word in the Greek says this, macro thumeo. Isn't that crazy? Man, I love the Greeks. And so when the word means macro thumeo, it literally means long-tempered. We see this in 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 9. It says this, that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is macro thumeo, long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's 2 Peter 3, 9, if you want to take notes. And so when we think to ourselves, man, when is Jesus going to come back? This verse here, macrothumeo, the idea there means that the character of God is so macrothumeo, so long-suffering, that he's not willing to let a single soul perish. And so when the last person that accepts the grace of God says, Lord, I believe in you, and in God's foreknowledge looking forward, he sees that not a single soul is going to accept him after that person, that's when he's going to come back. Because he is so macrothumeo, so long-suffering, that if someone's going to be born a hundred years from now, that is going to accept him, he's going to wait a hundred more years until he comes back. That's how much he loves us, right? And so, you know, when it says love suffers long and is kind, you know, when I read that, I was kind of like, I kind of tripped up a little bit. I was like, man, you know how difficult it must be to suffer long with somebody and to still be kind for them, right? And to still, you know, treat them with kindness, because the idea is that you're not just suffering long and you're not patient and then being bitter and complaining like, oh, man, God just hasn't really delivered this for me. I've been praying all my, you know, all my life and God really hasn't done anything, you know. But it says love suffers long and while you're suffering long, it is kind. It is the first verse that shows me, man, it is impossible to be loving. I literally need Jesus to be able to help me with that, you know. So the second one says this, love does not envy, Right. You know, envy is a sin. I got to be honest. Envy is a fun sin. Let's just be real. It's a fun sin that is always slipping into our conversation. It, it is, you know. It's always a fun, you know, it's always slipping into our conversation. It's always easily forgotten because let's think about it. How many times a day do you think we say, oh, man, must be nice, you know. It's literally me every time I see a truck. Oh, must be nice, man. <laughs> you know, good for you, man, you know. Um, and the thing is about envy is that we're always playing with it, you know? It's like, and it's so hard, too. If, if, if we use, you know, if you guys use social media, it's so hard to see somebody else's life and to be like, wow, they're going to France again. Must be nice, you know? It's like, oh, wow, they got married and he got a nice paycheck. Must be nice. Or it's like, oh, their kids are going to a nice, you know, private school. Must be nice, you know? Like, that's envy, right? And the thing about envy is that it is fun and we joke about it, but look at this. Look what happens with envy. Envy is what fueled Cain to kill uh, Abel, right? Envy fueled Joseph's brothers to sell him to slavery. A lot of us, we all have siblings here. Imagine doing that, you know? Um, Zach and I, we just got recently married, and we, and we had three other or two other sisters added to our family count, you know? I couldn't imagine for the life of me doing that, you know? But envy is what can do that to you. So when you say must be nice... That's what changes your heart. You let darkness seep into your heart, and it changes who you are. Envy was what the Pharisees used to kill Jesus. Think about that. And so envy, it is so subtle, and we play with it. But wow, it is one of the most extremely dangerous things. 
it completely puts us at a point of being so discontented. You know, the word envy is the word ze uh, zelo in the Greek. It's where we get the word zealous. And it literally means to burn with discontented longing. Wow. Okay, I want to stay away from that. Let's look at the next verse. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. Here's the thing. Love, in other words, is humbly anonymous. I'm going to say that again. Love is humbly anonymous. It is not looking to be recognized, you know? It's not like, you know, I don't know if you ever heard of it. This is really prominent in, like, I don't know. I don't want to judge. But it's really prominent in other areas. And uh, you'll be seeing things like this. Ryan Mesa Ministries. You know, you ever seen that? Or it's like, you know, uh, this guy ministries. It's like, that's not humbly anonymous when you put your name in. It's like, this guy's ministries or whatever. It's like, to me, when I see that, I'm just like, who's the ministry really about if it's named after you, you know? Um, and so the perfect example of anonymous love, of course, is Jesus Christ, you know? But specifically, I have this story. It's from John chapter 13. It's when Jesus was at the Last Supper, right? And, and you can just imagine, they're all sitting there and they're talking, and Jesus, he, he knows, the Bible says, that his time has come, right? He knows that his time has come to, um, to be glorified and that his hour had come. And he says that he knew that he had come from the Father and that he was going to the Father. In other words, this was the time that the thousand years that, that sorry, Israel was waiting for their Messiah to come, it was right here and there. And so the Bible says, knowing that he had come from God and was going to God, what does he do? He gets up and he washes his apostles' feet. Wow, humbly anonymous. But not only that, when you read it, the only person that seems to notice is Peter. It literally says this, and then he came to Peter and Peter said, Lord, are you washing my feet? It's like he had no idea. Then he felt his feet and was like, what? But every other apostle, all 11 of them, didn't even notice. And Jesus is going around, he's washing their feet, washing their feet, washing their feet, washing their feet. And they're just talking, they're thinking, they're laughing. And I got to say, I think the only reason why Peter was the one that noticed was because Jesus was doing Peter's job. That was Peter's position. You know, traditionally in a, uh, in a Jewish festival, they would always have um, these, you know, these like, you know, these meals and whatnot. And what would happen is that whoever was the lowest uh, in social status was typically the person sitting the furthest away from the guest of honor. Now, the guest of honor in this position is Jesus. And the person sitting the furthest away from him, we know, is Peter. And so he's sitting in the position of servanthood. I think Jesus is trying to teach him something, you know. And as he's sitting there, all the apostles, I can imagine, are arguing with one another. As, okay, who's, who's going to wash each other's feet? It's not going to be me because, you know, I'm, I'm the higher apostle. I'm the better apostle, you know. And then Peter, knowing that that's his job, and then Jesus gets up and starts washing the feet. The thing is, 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 you know, in my job, there's so many times when I will make a mistake and I will see a small detail and I'll be like, oh, you know what? That's just, that's just, you know, that's small enough. I don't think anyone's going to see that, you know? And then I'll be like working, working. And then I'll see this other guys that I work with come in, look at it and go, huh, that's wrong. And then they'll fix it. And then I'm like, man, that was me. You know, that was my job. And that's why I think Peter, he's, he recognized him. But Jesus was humbly anonymous, right? Uh, or verse 5, what does it say? It does not behave rudely, and it does not seek its own. So here's the thing. People who are rude, right, are rude because they're seeking their own, you know? If we are seeking our own, we can't be loving. We can only be rude. If we are seeking our own, if we're seeking to build up ourselves, to build up our career, to build up our empire, to build up our life, to make sure that we got the best and we got it all, Every person that's not, you know, yourself, everyone else is a threat 
to what you're trying to do. And the perfect example of this is King Saul. You guys remember King Saul? How King Saul was supposed to be the king of Israel, right? And as he's being told by God that I have taken away the kingdom from you and that I'm giving it to David, he's seeking his own so much that he not only is just rude to him, but he seeks to kill this guy's life. Now just imagine that if, if Saul would have, instead of was seeking his own, but was seeking the heart of God, understood that the way the, king, the, the, the kingship of Israel was to go to David, and by knowing that, and by knowing God enough to know that, hey, you know what, this is my position, i got to step down. Imagine the different type of story that would have happened if King Saul would have said, thy will be done. And here's a crown, David, because God has commanded you to be king. You know, Paul says in Philippians, he says that, you know, I have counted all things as loss. You know, the idea there is that I am so detached from the things of the world that I have completely identified myself with God and that I would just want to know him. Just to know him for me is just enough, right? And so when we are, you know, thinking rudely, right, it's easy for us to be provoked. But the Bible says, and the next one, what's it say? Verse 5 says, is not provoked, right? And so love, it love can't be provoked. Because again, when you're not focused on yourself, you're focused on God. You're identifying yourself with the Lord. And when someone insults you, when someone says, oh, well, what you're doing isn't really that good of a thing. You know, when someone insults your family, when someone, you know, I'm not saying, hey, you know what, be kind of like a weak dog. But when someone insults you, you realize my identity is in heaven. And so when you insult me, that's fine because I'm going to die in the, in the next, you know, however many years. Because my eternity, my citizenship is in heaven, right? And so when he says, I count it all as lost, he's saying, this isn't even me. And so for an example of not being provoked, I think I see Jesus, you know, on the cross. And when I see him on the cross, I see that everyone is like yelling at him and saying, hey, if you're the Messiah, why don't you bring yourself down? You know, if you're, the, if you're the king of Israel, you know, why don't you bring yourself down from the, you know, why don't you call down angels and things like that? They're provoking him. And what does he say? He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not of what they do. Love is not provoked. You know, it thinks no evil is what it says. Literally translated, it means it does not store up evil memories and thoughts about other people. You know, but when I read that, I felt like God just like punched me in the chin, you know. Because here's the thing, Jesus said, forgive and forget. And there's a huge part when he says forget. It's not just forgive and be like, oh, remember when you, you know, when you really hurt me that one time? No, no, no. he says forgive and forget. And there's a reason to the forgetting because everybody, I would wager, everybody in this room has been hurt by somebody at some point in time. It might even be somebody in this room that has hurt you, you know. And the thing about people is that we are so much more likely to hold on to that hurt. Because what we want, and I believe this is true, is we want evidence to not love somebody. Because loving is hard, is it not? Being selfless to somebody is hard. And when someone hurts you, when someone despises you, when someone wrongs you, you want the reason to not love them. You want to excuse yourself from the command that God gave you, right? And so when it says it thinks no evil, it means that all that hurt that has happened to you, you let go of it. You know, it's been said that when you have bitterness towards another person, it's like staring at them and drinking poison, hoping that they die. It makes no sense. You know? And so when we hold on to that evil for too long, it's like we forget 
what the reason was why they hurt us in the first place. And we end up being like these people who are like, ugh, I don't like that person. Why? They're just, they're too blonde, you know. Or it's like, why do you like the person? Oh, they're too tall. And, and you just have like, you have like, you just start like bringing up these reasons of why you don't like that person. When really the original reason for whatever reason that they hurt you was gone years ago. And the, per- and the reason why you don't like them now is not because of whatever reason. It's because you have held up all that evil in your heart. And you have kept it in the, in the front of your mind. And you have not forgotten about it, but you've remembered it. And you said, no, you did this to me. And you have no record of grace in your speech in those regards. And he says, it thinks no evil. Amen. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Now, I'm going to continue on this thought of thinking no evil. When you are thinking evil towards your brother or towards your sister, and when they fall, when something bad happens in their life, isn't it true that we are so much more likely to celebrate when something bad happens to them? When you're thinking evil towards somebody, and you're just really bitter towards them, you just don't like them, and here they are, they get fired. Or here they are, you know, they're really struggling in their marriage. Oh, well, they deserve it, you know? But love does not rejoice in, iniqui- in iniquity. But, it, you know, that teaches us tr- uh, that teaches us two different concepts. <clears throat> Excuse me. The first concept, again, is that a true heart of God-given love will never rejoice in the fallings of a brother or a sister in the Lord. And the second concept, now this is going to be touching, so wait with me, is that true, genuine love, if you genuinely love somebody, you are not going to rejoice in their sin. Does that make sense? I'm going to say that again. If you have genuine love for an individual, you are not going to celebrate their sin. Now, in 2015, the biggest topic that was being spoken of was love wins. You guys remember that? It was when the Supreme Court completely said all 50 states have to legalize homosexual marriage. And so it became this thing where it was like, hey, church, you guys have been talking about love for the past thousands of years. How about this? How about right here? You guys love this person because I love them. I love who they are. But the Bible says here, love does not celebrate, does not rejoice in iniquity. It's not, I'm not going to celebrate in your wrongdoings. I'm not going to celebrate your sin. Now, I use the example of homosexuality, but another one is like, I'm not going to celebrate when they get divorced. I'm not going to celebrate when, you know, he's cheating on his wife and, you know, he's having a fun time. I'm not going to celebrate when he's using his money for horrible practices. I'm not going to count myself among those people that are doing that in the world because it is so common. It is so common to be like, oh, yeah, good for you. You know, you're doing something better for yourself when the Bible says that's sin. But what does it say? It does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. You know, when you love iniquity, you're putting this false blanket of security around them because they see you as a Christian. And when they see you as a Christian, they see you as the ambassador of God. And if you love their iniquity, if you love their sin, if you love what they're doing, then they think God loves what they're doing. And by doing that, you're putting this false blanket of, sec- of security of like, hey, God is accepting of what I am doing. And while doing that, what you're robbing them is of the truth. And the truth says that Jesus Christ came to die for the ungodly. And so when it says it rejoices in, in the truth, It means that I'm not going to celebrate your sin, but what I am going to celebrate is that Jesus died for me in as much as he he died for you. And that you're a sinner, so am I. Paul, Paul considers himself in 1 Timothy, he says, this is a true and faithful saying that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of who I am chief. Now Paul was, you know, Paul was straight. He wasn't married. 
right? But he murdered and persecuted the church. And so Paul himself, the guy that wrote almost the New Testament, said, I am the worst sinner. Everybody else falls underneath me. And he goes, and he saved me. And if Jesus can save the top, he can save the guy at the bottom. And so when we have this approach towards people who are struggling in their sin, it's not an approach of, I'm going to bring judgment and criticism towards your life. I'm going to love you as Jesus did, but I'm going to celebrate in the truth. I have a story to illustrate that. You know, I, when I was 19, I was a camp counselor in California. And uh, it was for middle school kids. And everyone knows that middle school kids are just a lot. And uh, <laughs> it's true. And, uh, and so, you know, I remember, like, what we did is, like, almost for a full month, because being a counselor is such a lonely thing, because you are serving base of these kids, and you don't have really a whole lot of people to support you. And so what they did is that for almost a whole month, they had us build relationships with all the other counselors so that we were, like, a cohesive group. By the time the middle school kids came, you know, we were just all, like, one team, one unit. Specifically, there was this guy, and he was, man, he was my best friend. He was my brother. You know, we just connected on just a super deep level. And I just remember having conversations with him being like, man, isn't it just so crazy, so crazy that God came and he died for us? And that all we have to do to be cleansed of all of our unrighteousness is we just put our faith in him, and that's it. And he cleanses us from the inside out. And he'd be like, yeah, man, that is pretty crazy. Several weeks later, towards the end of the summer, um, he got he got fired because um, he was you know he was participating in homosexual acts and he went to a uh, um, like a gay parade in San Diego you know and he was you know all over social media and part of the contract was like hey this is something that we just don't believe in as Christians and so I just remember thinking like dude you're gay I was I had no idea I had no idea because. I genuinely believe to this day that what happened was that God put a veil over my eyes to, to, so that I wouldn't see his sin, but that I would see him as a person. I would see him as a human being and that I would see him as somebody that needs the gospel just as much as I do. Because several months later, I would be going into the hardest part of my life. And so that I would see him as a person, someone who Jesus died for. And that the moment that his sin was revealed, that's when I was like, hey, you're still my best friend. I still love you to death and I'm praying for you. You know, and I genuinely believe that that's what God did in that moment to reach to him, you know, and I still pray for him to this day, you know, and last but not least, we have the four horsemen of love is what I call. It says bears all things, it says believes all things, it says hopes all things, and it endures all things. So one at a time, it says bears all things. So to bear is to carry, right? And so when the Bible, when the Bible says love bears all things, it means that there is nothing that should keep us from helping and supporting one another. Have you ever been on the side of like, hey, can you help me with this? Oh, well, ugh, sorry, I'm really tired, you know? It's like, if you love somebody, love says you bear all things. And we have kind of have like this tendency to criticize people that say yes all the time. Now, don't get me wrong. I think that you should have wisdom and be like, hey, you know what? This is, this is what I can manage, right? I can, you know, I don't have eight arms or legs, so I can manage about this much, right? And be wise in that. Know what that is. But also be somebody that's willing to bear other people's burdens. Don't be someone that's like, you know, distancing yourself from some, one another. But be willing to get in there and serve. Be willing to get your elbows dirty. Be willing to get in there and work. Because but when you love someone, you're willing to take their life on your shoulders and you're willing to walk with them. I think about when Jesus was walking to the cross, you know, and how he, was, he had to bear his own cross. And he couldn't even do it 
And they had to have Simon come in and pick up his cross for him. That's called bearing another, another burden, right? It says, believes all things. Now, when it says believes all things, don't get it wrong. It's not saying a gullible belief. It's not saying that when someone says, you know, I don't know, whatever, that you're just, you know, eager to, you know, believe in them. But really what it's talking about is that when it says believes all things, you're not finding a reason to disbelieve in somebody. You're not trying to look into their life, find the cracks and say, actually, no, that's not true. And so, you know, I was kind of thinking, like, what if we switch shoes on that? What if we were the person, okay, that was struggling with their sin and they come to the church and they're expecting love and grace and they don't receive it? I would imagine that whatever sin that they're in is something that they would get deeper into. But if they were someone who's struggling with their sin and they came to the church and they received love and grace and that the people believed that they wanted to change themselves, if the church believed, I, I genuinely believe that you are here because you want to know God. If the church did that, I would believe that change would come. You know, And I say that speaking out of experience because of all the things that I've done in my own personal life, when people were there eager to criticize me, I was so eager to do it all the more. But when people were there and saying, hey, I love you. I love you as who you are. I love you as Ryan Mesa. Then that's when I was like, wow, this guy loves me for who I am. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get, get rid of this stuff right here. You know? And I think specifically, you know, this is a belief that is eager to believe in somebody. You know, it's, it's eager to say, I want to support you. It's eager to say, I'm by your side. It's not eager to say, hey, you need to prove your faithfulness to me before I invest myself into you. It's saying, if you're here, I'm going to love you. And because I love you, I'm going to invest myself into you, right? So the next one is, it hopes all things, right? Love is always optimistic of the future. In this life, it's so easy to get beat up, right? It's so easy to get beat up at your work and just be like, man, I'm just not doing a good enough job. Or again, it's easy to envy what other people got going on in their lives and be like, man, they got it all. I don't really have it. I'm not really doing a good enough job. It's so easy to do that and then to become cynical. But when it says it hopes all things, it's always looking forward. It's always looking at what's coming next and it's always longing for the day that we meet Jesus. And it always knows that even when life gets horrible, God works all things together for that good. It says, you know, remember that song? We sing the song all the time that even when the enemy means for evil, you turn it for our good, right? It hopes all things. When you love, you hope in all things, right? Last one, endures all things. Here's the thing. Love simply is not a quitter. Love is not somebody that's ready to give up. You know, we had our marriage conference last, uh, yesterday. And, you know, to bring a little bit of, of uh, knowledge from that, you know, my ring symbolizes forever. There's no such such thing as a shortcut. You know, I remember this one time. I'm, I'm speaking with this guy that I work with, and, uh, and he's been engaged for, um, for some time. And I said to him, I was like, you know, when, when are we going to, you know, move into the stage of getting married? And he's like, here's the thing, man. I just don't know if, you know, she's going to last. You know, I don't know if, like, our marriage is going to fail. I don't know if this and that. And I said to him, and I was like, well, you wanted something interesting. You know, the world... Pre, uh, what's it called? Like the world uh, marriage rate for like prearranged marriages fails at six percent. In other words, the six percent of all the marriages in the world that are prearranged, preordained, as in like you're gonna marry her, you're gonna marry him, they they fail at six percent. I told him that, and then he says this. He says, "Well, that's because they have to be married to that person." And I said, "Exactly. Imagine having the mindset of looking at your wife and saying, I have to be married to you, and I'm gonna stay into it because love never fails. Love doesn't quit." I'm enduring. I'm staying in this. It means till death do us part. I don't know what it is, but why do we not believe in that? Till death do us part. 
for richer or for poorer. And so when it says love endures all things, it literally means that. That's why this passage is at every single wedding ceremony. It's because it's literally the wedding vows. It means that no matter where you are in your life, you're going to endure. It means that no matter how tough it gets, you're going to get through. Does that make sense? Hebrews 12, 2 says this. Looking unto Jesus, the founder and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Let me read that to you one more time. This is my favorite verse. It says, looking unto Jesus, the founder and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy, for the joy of the cross, that's insane, that he was joyful to go to the cross, to die for you, to die for your family, to die for everyone that you know, who for the joy of redeeming mankind back to God, what does it say? Endured the cross. Love endures all things. Amen? Last one says in verse 8, love never fails. Here's the thing. Uh, we can always be confident that loving somebody is the best choice. If you don't know, man, hmm, uh, should I rebuke this individual? Should I criticize them? Should I this? Should I that? I don't know how to really take this you know, stance. Love is always the right answer. Always. If you don't know how should I approach this, always with love. It is always something that you know is never going to fail. Because here's the thing. At some point in time, somebody's going to fail you. That could even be your spouse. That could even be your boss. That could even be your, your, uh, you know, your company. That could be the economy. That could be President Trump. You know, At some point in time, somebody is going to fail you. But love is never going to fail. And so when, world, when the world gets chaotic... And when everything around the world starts changing, it's the very essence of love that remains true and remains the same. Last verse before we end. It's John chapter 13, verse 35. Everybody knows this verse. Everybody does. By this they will know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Amen? Let's pray.